Blessed words have a way of staying with you. What do you say when you have no more breath? How do you wrap up everything that you have left unsaid in just a sentence or two? What can you say to people that will continue to inspire them long after you're gone? A quick Google search of famous last words can leave you with profound sorrow, gratitude, inspiration, and a whole host of other feelings. I came across one recently that that struck me. It's nothing too extravagant, nothing too clever, nothing too world-changing or insightful, but it stuck me because of the context in which these words were said. I'm looking for loopholes. These words are spoken by, they were spoken by a comedian on his deathbed when asked why he was reading the Bible. He was a well-known atheist and had no care or concern for the Lord. He, in fact, regarded all religions with the suspicion of a seasoned con man, according to one biographer. But here's a man on his deathbed, knowing his time is about up. He has no care for, no concern for, or belief in God, and yet for some reason... He decides to pick up a Bible, not in a desperate attempt to find God or to cram for a final, but in an effort to justify himself, to tell God why he was right and why God was wrong. I won't pretend to know or judge this man's intentions. However, if we're going to take his words at face value, that's what we're left to conclude. I'm looking for loopholes. Perhaps another reason why these words stuck with me is because It's so like me. I do the same thing. I'm looking for loopholes. And I'd be willing to bet that I'm not alone on this. In fact, this is an an ancient practice going back to the Garden of Eden. If Adam and Eve could prove that it was someone else who made me do it, there's my loophole. I'm off the hook. It's not my fault or my problem. If the Israelites could prove that it wasn't their fault that they had to wander in the wilderness for so long, and they'd find themselves worthy of entering the promised land. And if you and I can check the boxes with everything that we've done, that we've needed to do, then we can say there's a loophole. Now, God, it's your turn to hold up your end of the bargain. God, you need to richly bless me here in the way that I expected and I demand it, because look at what I've done. There's our loophole. I invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. As I read verses 1 through 9, and and again, if you are able to, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. But Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, reading in Jesus' name. Now this is a commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true, your word is good. 
We pray this morning that you would give us understanding into your word, Lord, that it would reach to our own hearts here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy towards the end of his lifetime. When the Israelites are about to enter the promised land, it's a long time in waiting. They've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, knowing that this is where God is taking us. Now they're about to make it in. But before they do, Moses reminds them again of God's holy will for them. Moses begins by revisiting a short history of God's people. And here's a paraphrase. We were in Egypt. God brought us out. We sent some spies to check the land out that that he told us we were going to go to, and it was awesome. There's just one problem. The people there are a little intimidating. So here is uh, what Moses writes, Yet you are not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. The enemy is too big. God, you hate us. You're promising this this wonderful thing for us, but you're saying that there's some pretty evil people there, and so you're going to kill us if you bring us into that land. We can't handle them. It'd be the death of us if we went. Moses reminds the people again to fear and trust the Lord, the Lord who goes before them. He says this, but for all of this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day. To make a long story short, Moses is saying here, guys, God promised this land for us and uh, you blew it. Basically telling the people, I told you so. This is what Moses gets to say as he rides off into the sunset and writes his final book here. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. To you it was shown that you might know the Lord, that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. The Lord continued to reveal himself and his will to his people. And in chapter 5, verse 29, he says this, Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Does this sound, do these sound like the words of someone who hates you and wants you to have an utterly miserable life? Or do these sounds sound like the word of a compassionate God who wants what's best for you? This is what God is saying. This is the God who goes before them, the one in whom they are to trust. And this is why the Lord is doing what he is doing for their own good. This is the context in which Moses delivers the verses that we just read. The Lord wants his people not only to know his love for them, but the Lord also wants to spare them from the harm that he knows is coming when they turn aside from his ways. So he commands Moses to teach the Israelites these words. What does it mean to teach? Is teaching as simple as verbalizing facts? Is teaching someone the same as delivering a monologue? Allow me to teach you how to drive a car. Pretend I have a key. This is a key. It's a car key. You put it in the ignition. You turn the ignition away from you, and the car turns on. On the right is the gas pedal. On the left is the brake pedal. We're not going to talk about clutches because it's 2023 right now. 
But those are the pedals that you need to know. The gas makes you go, the brakes make you stop. Here's the steering wheel, it helps you steer. Now you know how to drive a car, right? Intellectually, you know how to drive a car, but have you learned how to drive? No, you know some important information, but you haven't learned how to drive. It's more than just acquiring facts. Acquiring knowledge is part of it, but it's not, just, it's not enough to just know the facts. We also must do and practice. The Lord tells Moses to teach his people here so that they might do not just so they can be on Jeopardy someday and have all the answers for Bible trivia for 100, 200, 500, 1,000, but that they might properly live their lives before God as God has called them to, that they would fear the Lord their God, that they would keep all of his statutes and commandments, that their days may be prolonged. God is prescribing this for the benefit of his own people. It's for their own good, that it may go well with them. God doesn't give his law so he has a reason to be mad at us. He gives his law because he is the one who has designed us. He's the one who has ordered creation and he knows how it works best. His law is for our own benefit. Looking back at what Moses had just said in Deuteronomy chapter 1, the people had forgotten to fear the Lord. And when the rubber hit the road, they feared the Canaanites, they feared the Amorites more than the Lord, and they were too afraid to enter into the promised land even though the Lord had promised to be with them, even though the Lord promised to go before them, even though each night they were able to see the pillar of fire that led them and guided them, that each day they followed behind the pillar of cloud that protected them and led them and guided them. But yet they couldn't go into the promised land. They were too afraid. They feared man more than they feared the Lord. God doesn't give his law again to be mad at us, but for our own benefit. The Lord commands Moses here to remind his people of who he is in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. As you're entering into the promised land, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Remember that. Don't worry about the Amorites. Don't worry about the Canaanites. Don't worry about what this person might say or do. The Lord is our God and the Lord is one. <clears throat> These words are like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Every Jew would know this phrase. They would know this verse. <clears throat> they would know the Shema, which is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This text declares who God is and reminds his people who they are in relation to him. He is their God and he is one. The primary emphasis of this text isn't to uh, be a proof text for pro proving that God is the triune God. He's three in one. That's not the main point of this. It's to point out and remind the Israelites that the Lord is in the category of his own. He is one. There is no other category. There is no one else in this category. There is no other Yahweh. There is no other Lord. There is no other comparison or replacement for him. He is the one who delivered them. He is the one who goes before them, the Lord, and no other. Spoiler alert, this didn't stop the Israelites from trying to replace God, did it? The rest of the Old Testament could be summarized by God's people trying to replace God and God calling his people back to himself again and again and again. Before we get too hard on these Israelites, 
That's not a foreign concept for us either. We're just as guilty with trying to replace the Lord in our own lives. That there are lots of things that we place in the same category of God. So many things on which we set our hearts and we put our trust in. So many places we look for all good. So many places we run to when we're seeking refuge in distress. And we make the interests of our hearts into our God. And oftentimes those interests are not God himself, but something else. And so we need to hear this text again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. We need to stop at that first word. Hear. Listen. Learn this. Remember this. Know this. This is where it starts. Hear. Listen. God is graciously coming to you through his word. So hear and listen and give ear to it. A few months ago, we heard a hymn for the first time, and it's a pretty catchy hymn. Uh, Kids, I apologize for earworming you right now. But it catches this phrase here and brings us back to this. Evan caught on to it right away, and he would sing the chorus all the time throughout the house. And so, never having heard this song, I knew how the chorus went. And then we went to chapel and heard it, and now we have it, and it gets stuck in our minds. One person calls out, listen. I was hoping the kids would join in. They didn't. And then everyone responds, listen, God is calling through the word inviting, offering forgiveness, comfort, and joy. This is what God is doing through his word. This is why God calls the Israelites to hear, O Israel, listen up. I am calling to you. You're not seeking me, but I am coming to you, offering grace and forgiveness, comfort, and joy. Hear, listen to me. This is what's at the root and the heart of this Shema. This is what the Lord is getting at here in this text. Listen up, I want to bless you. I am the Lord, there is no other. I'm talking to you. Remember those years in the wilderness. Let's not do that again. It was a learning experience for you. Learn this, listen up, and put this into practice. But what does it look like to put this into practice? Moses continues in the text, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This requires action here. We listen, we we hear this in, we bring this in, we receive it into our hearts like we talked about in Sunday school, having that hospitality, inviting God's word in. And then we do. We act on it. It's more than a warm sentiment or a feeling, but it's an action. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our being, with all of our faculties, with everything that we are and all that we have. As the Lord continues to speak through Moses, he directs us to how our love for God is to be lived out. And these words are to be on your heart, but not just on your heart, on the hearts of those around you. So teach them diligently to your sons. Talk of them. Bind them on your hand and your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your houses and your gates. What they did. They wrote them on their doorposts, on their gates. They bound them to their hand and to their forehead so they can say, we did it. Here it is. We have done all that God has told us to do. Look at me. I have done it. You can find these little scripture boxes about this big, or little, little plaques on the walls of Jewish homes and door frames and doorways because they are trying to keep these words here. They know it's important, and so they keep it. So they fasten God's word to the wall, and that's it. 
And we can look at that and say, yeah, that's kind of missing the point, though. God says, write these things on, on your heart. They're to be on your heart. And, and this is supposed to help get from here to your heart to remind you of these things. And we can do the same thing, can't we? We put a scripture verse up somewhere in a hallway or a nice piece of artwork, and we can say, there, we have God's word. This is a Christian home, but it always stays on the wall. It's never talked about. It's never discussed. It's never brought into our own hearts. But we have it. We've done it. What more can God ask of us here? But the Lord isn't concerned about the amount of scripture verses that we have on our walls. It's the heart that he's after, according to verse 6. These truths aren't tattooed on your heart by a piece of art, but they are etched in our hearts by the gracious working of the Lord, which is why this first command here is to hear. And so we give ourselves to the hearing of God's word. And we allow God and his Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts and in our lives. And so we gladly hear it. We gladly learn it. We gladly practice it. Because in it and through it, God is speaking to us. He reminds us of who he is and what he has done for us. And he instructs us how we are to live our lives. He instructs us here in verse 7 that the Christian life isn't to be a compartmentalized life. But it's an all-inclusive experience. Whether you're sitting or you're standing. We speak of the Lord. We teach of the Lord. We talk about the Lord. Whether we're working or resting, whether we're going to bed or we're waking up, the Lord is our God and there is none other. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God forever and always and continually. And as I said earlier, this doesn't stop our hearts from continuing to look for a replacement, does it? It's what our sinful hearts, our sinful nature does. We are constantly trying to worship creation rather than creator. We need to be reminded again of who our God is and that there is no one else in that category. We need to hear his word and to learn it. We need to teach it diligently to our sons, to our grandkids, to our daughters, to our neighbors. And this, goes, this idea goes beyond biological children here. He's not talking just to heads of homes. He is talking to Israel, all of Israel, collectively with the children the Lord has entrusted to teach these things diligently. And here's a place where, where we look for a loophole. Do I really have to do that? I'm inadequate. I'm untrained. I don't know what I am talking about. I might mess up. Can't we just let the professionals do that? Does anyone else ever feel inadequate for teaching someone to fear and love God? Because I sure do. We're inadequate for this. We're inadequate, just like the Israelites were inadequate to enter into the promised land. They feared the Amorites, saying, we can't beat them. But what is the Lord saying? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, and he is the one who goes before you. Anyone else feel bashful about speaking of the Lord in public places or with the people that you know? Suddenly again, we find ourselves in the same sandals as these Israelites, afraid. We fear people. We just can't do it. It's too uncomfortable. It's too awkward. I might die. I don't know enough, etc., etc. And the excuses continue to come because we're desperately looking for a loophole here so that I can be off the hook, so that I can somehow put my scripture on the wall and touch it once in a while and say, God, I'm doing what your word has called me to do. 
and ignore the other parts of it. Surely God doesn't expect me to do this, we tell ourselves. At the end of the day, we aren't too different from that atheist comedian searching for loopholes, searching for ways that we can justify ourselves and say, God, we have kept your word, we've done everything that you've called us to do, and yet not actually doing the work that he has called us to do. We aren't too different from the faithless Israelites whose hearts melted with fear in what lay ahead. And we too need to listen to the Lord, to hear the word of the Lord, to hear this wonderful truth, friends, the Lord, your God, who goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. And God says, have I not led you every step of the way? You don't need to fear what lies ahead because I am already there. I am the God who goes before you. And we know this. We know this more so than just because God is faithful in the Old Testament to do this, but we know this because we just celebrated Christmas when God took on flesh to be among us, to again go before us to fight our battles on our behalf, to silence the accusations of the adversary against us, to pay for our sins, to pay for our negligence, to pay for our apathy, to incur the wrath of God on your behalf and on my behalf. He fought that fight for you. The Lord has gone before us, and he has fought, and he will fight on your behalf and on my behalf. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is your God. The Lord is one. There is no other, and there are no loopholes for us here in this text that we can somehow say, it doesn't apply to me or that I have nothing to do with this. But the text, the word of God, comes to us today encouraging us, reminding us, demanding us to hear that word of God. And not only to hear that word of God, but to put it into practice as well. That we would do the word of God. That it may go well with us, and not only with us, but with our sons and our grandsons forever. So keep your eyes focused on the God who goes before you. And know that it is he, and he alone, who fights your battles. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for its truth. God, as we look into your word, we're, we're constantly looking for loopholes, Lord. We want to take what we want to hear and, and we want to turn out what, turn off what, what we don't want to hear. But God, your word is truth in all of its entirety. The hard parts for us to swallow and, and Lord, the easy parts as well. Help us, Lord, to hear your word, to listen to it, to learn it, to obey it, to study it. And Lord, not only that we would take these truths and internalize them for ourselves, but Lord, that we would take these truths and learn them and also teach them to those that you have entrusted into our care, whether it be our biological children, Lord, whether it be the people that you have put into our own uh, spheres of influence. God, we pray that you would keep us faithful in that task. Help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, but Lord, also the divine warrior who goes before us. Help us to fear and love you above all things, and to not be distracted by the other things that seem so intimidating in this life. Forgive us, Lord, for our failures. Forgive us, Lord, for our disregard of your word. And draw us back to yourself again, that we would remember, that we would know, that we would hear and listen, that you are our God, that you are one, 
and there is no other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.